Hi, I'm Valerie Steele, Director and Chief Curator of the Museum at FIT, the most fashionable museum in New York City. Welcome to our Fashion Culture podcast series, featuring lectures and conversations about fashion. If you like what you hear, please share your thoughts on social media using the hashtag #FashionCulture. Good morning. I should say hello, explorers. Um, thank you so much to uh, Dr. Valerie Steele and the entire team at uh, the museum at FIT for including the Explorers Club in this incredible expedition uh, in, more than, in more ways than one. Patricia, you have been absolutely phenomenal. Um, and that's kind of where we're going to start our talk this morning. When I first was contacted by Patricia and the team at FIT, it was sort of under the guise of, um, can you tell us the history of exploration in about 5,000 words, right? <laughs> and uh, I said, well, we can try, but we're not going to get there. Um, and so we decided that it was going to be really pertinent to kind of take Patricia's thesis and uh, really work it in with uh, what we call the clubs, the Explorers Club's famous firsts. Um, so the history of exploration as told through the Explorers Club, if you'll indulge me with this for just a moment. Uh, so the Explorers Club is an international multidisciplinary professional society dedicated to the advancement of scientific exploration and field research. The club's core philosophy is to preserve the instinct to explore land, sea, air, and space. The club was founded in 1904 by seven Arctic explorers, and we'll get back to that in just a minute. But prior to the 19th century, as you've already heard a bit about this morning, exploration was really all about conquest. It was about trade. There was some type of political, geographical, or religious motivation behind what these explorers, so to speak, were, were trying to accomplish here. It wasn't until the rise of science during the Victorian era, uh, especially of the natural sciences that exploration began to assume its modern purpose. This new motivation had a not insignificant competitive edge, uh, which was notably manifested at the turn of the 20th century with the race to the North Pole. Um, our seven founders, as I said, were all these intrepid Arctic explorers, and they were part of what was called the Arctic Club of America during the golden age of heroic exploration. And they sort of said to themselves, you know what, there's a lot more to explore than just the Arctic, right? So their, their ideas became the foundation of our mission. And they really wanted to unite explorers in the bonds of good fellowship and to promote the work of exploration by every means uh, possible in its power. Uh, and so through doing that, we come to our what we call the famous firsts. These expeditions uh, really are intrepid in terms of taking us through the 20th century of exploration and kind of where we got to, how we got there, all of those types of things. So we do recognize the North Pole expedition of 1909, Matthew Henson and Robert Perry, as the first expedition to successfully reach the North Pole. And we'll get into that in just a minute. Um, the South Pole was uh, discovered in 1911 by Roald Amundsen and his team. The highest point on Earth, the summit of Mount Everest, 1953, Sir Edmund Hillary and Tenzing Norgay. The lowest point on Earth, or the deepest point on Earth, Marianas Trench in 1960, which was discovered uh, our first uh, descended into by the club's current honorary president, Don Walsh, and Jacques Picard. And of course, the surface of the moon with the Apollo 11 moon landing in 1969 with Neil Armstrong, Buzz Aldrin, and Michael Collins. The, the talk today is really going to examine these landmark expeditions and we'll briefly touch upon some of the foundational efforts and discoveries that led ultimately to the success of these famous first expeditions. 
the North Pole. Now these images are all of, um, they, they come from the club's uh, collection of lantern slides. So these are all prints of hand-painted glass slides um, from that expedition. Uh, so we do acknowledge that Perry and Henson were the first to the North Pole in 1909, but of course that is absolutely shrouded in controversy uh, with people trying to dispel that uh, most famously with the Frederick Cook, uh, Robert Perry controversy, um, trying to discredit one another with that. The club does recognize that there will never be enough scientific evidence to prove whether or not Perry and Henson actually made it to the North Pole, but we do celebrate their efforts nonetheless. So the race for the North Pole was an incredibly fervent one. Humanity has always been fascinated with the farthest north, uh, dating back to 320 BC. Pythias is said at that time to have discovered, discovered the northern land of Thule. In 900 AD, the Norse explored and settled Greenland. Skipping ahead by quite a bit, uh, 1893, Robert Perry attempted what would be the first of eight expeditions to the North Pole. Each of these expeditions was an incredible trial and error learning process for the team. Uh, and that brings us now to the 1909 expedition. It actually began in July of 1908. The SS Roosevelt departed from Manhattan, from the 24th Street Pier, and headed for Cape Sheridan uh, on es Ellesmere Island. They arrived September 5th, overwintered there, and readied themselves for the push to the pole. While they were there, um, and I think Patricia had uh, alluded to this a bit earlier, they were preparing for their push northward. It was Matthew Henson who said, you know, we were unsuccessful on our seven other tries for this. How can we change that? And he really took what the Inuit people were doing and made it his own. You know, they were up until that point using these long, narrow sledges that got stuck in the uneven ice flows in the glaciers. Um, and he noticed, you know, the Inuit people use these sledges with curved up edges on either side. Why aren't we doing that, right? Um, he actually went up there without Arctic gear. The Inuit women made it for him while he was there. Um, so really kind of manifesting their talents um, and using them in their, in their success. While they were overwintering, they took things back and forth to 93 miles northwest to Cape Columbia, and on March 1st of 1909, the expedition departed Cape Columbia, stepped off land, uh, and set off across the frozen polar waters, and the North Pole lay more than 400 miles uh, northward. They traveled in a series of relays. Um, on, on April 1st, 1909, Captain Robert A. Bartlett uh, and the final supporting party would turn back towards Cape Sheridan after reaching 87 degrees northward. On April 6th, 1909, Camp Jessup was formed at the North Pole. Perry, Henson, and four Inuit men, Uta, Ukiya, Siglu, and Egingwa, set, set foot on what they considered to be the farthest north. Now, we go to the South Pole. Um, documented South Polar expedition, uh, exploration really began in 1773 when British explorer Captain James Cook entered the Antarctic at 71 degrees south. And he is quoted as saying, I can be bold enough to say that no man will ever venture farther than I have done and that the lands which may be south will never be explored. Well, of course, if you know anything about explorers, they don't take no for an answer, right? <laughs> um, so, his information, of course, was not at all prescient, and by 1912, two parties had reached the South Pole. The onset of really formal South Polar exploration began in 1895, 
when the Sixth International Geographical Congress adopted a, a resolution that essentially stated the exploration of the Antarctic regions is the greatest feat of geographical exploration that uh, is still to be undertaken. And that was really uh, um, brought about because of Norwegian explorer Leonard Christensen and his six men when they were the first to step foot on the continent earlier that year. By 1907, uh, British, with the 1907-1909 British Antarctic Expedition, Sir Ernest Shackleton reached within 97 miles of the geographic South Pole. The team that would ultimately reach the South Pole was actually heading northwards. Um, Roald Amundsen and his team had their sights set on the North Pole. As I said, it was part of the uh, heroic age of North Polar exploration. Uh, but he after he had heard that Perry and Henson had gotten there, is quoted as saying, if I was going to main my, maintain my prestige as an explorer, I must quickly achieve a sensational success of some sort. So he very quietly readied his ship, readied his crew, and turned southwards. Uh, they left, the, the Fram left Norway in August of 1910 and sailed towards Madeira in the Atlantic. They proceeded to the Ross Sea where they would um, set up camp at the Bay of Wales. Uh, building on expeditions before them, they calculated the weight, they calculated the dogs they would need, all of that, because this was all very scientific in terms of what you could do, how far you could get, all of those things. And October, on, on October 20th, 1911, Amundsen and a team of four men and 52 sled dogs set out south. On December 14th, 1911, at approximately 3 p.m., the team halted and raised the Norwegian flag. It's at that time that Amundsen sort of reflects saying, of course, every one of us knew we were not standing on the absolute spot, but we were near it, and the few miles which, we were, which possibly separated us were not of the slightest importance. Now, because of the, the, the Cook-Perry controversy, not really being able to uh, tell us if they had reached the North Pole, Amundsen wanted to combat that, and so what he did is he set out uh, men to trek 90 degrees to the left on the march trajectory, and another group to uh, march 90 degrees to the right on that trajectory, um, and they trekked 12 and a half miles in each direction to ensure that they had reached the pole. And it was found in the days later when they did their calculations that those uh, treks were what actually reached the South Pole. Now we skip ahead quite a bit um, to May 29th, 1953, uh, when, of course, uh, Edmund Hillary and Ted Norgay successfully summited Mount Everest for the first time, reaching the highest point on Earth. The president of the British Alpine Club from 1886 to 1889 was a gentleman by the name of Clinton Thomas Dent. And it was at that time during his presidency that summiting Everest actually was spoken out loud and the feasibility of it became uh, paramount. And he said, to those who have the health, experience, and energy, I can but say there. In that strange country, those giant peaks wait for you, silent, majestic, unvisited. And it was those words that expeditions to Everest were soon thereafter launched. Um, very notably, it was the Swiss expedition of 1952 that was the first to be granted permission to attempt a climb from Nepal. It was, uh, they, they then established a route through the Kumbu Icefall, and it was Swiss mountaineer Raymond Lambert and Nepalese Sherpa Tenzing Norgay who reached a record 28,199 feet on the southeast ridge. They turned back uh, about 820 feet from the summit because of harsh conditions and malfunctioning oxygen tanks. But 
Tenzing Norgay's experience on this expedition would, prove, uh, would pave the way for the 1953 summit. Early of March 1953, the Everest expedition led by John Hunt began their trek from Kathmandu, Nepal, overcoming treacherous shifting glacial ice of the Khumbu Icefall at 18,000 uh, 18, feet. The expedition then went on to establish advanced base camp at 21,200 feet. The climbing team of 19 Sherpas reached the South Call at 28,500 feet, which is the midpoint ridge connecting Lhotse and Everest. When the weather took a turn, the team was halted, but Hillary convinced uh, their expedition leader, John Hunt, uh, to allow him and Norgay to continue onwards. Permission was granted, and the two continued, continued trudging through avalanche-prone soft, uh, soft snows and uh, towards their ascent. Hillary and Norgay would then encounter a 40-foot vertical rock wall. At this point, Hillary is clinging to a fissure on the rock, and he's able to pull himself up and over, uh, and up and over the wall, and it is now known as the Hillary Step, which is the final step before you reach the actual summit from that direction. He then belayed the rope down to Norgay, and they continued upwards. Then came one of the um, unlikely questions, they looked around and kind of said to themselves, well, this is the hardest part. Where's the summit? At 11.30 in the morning, they shook hands and realized we must be standing on it. Um, and that is how they determined that they were on the summit of Everest. We head back south again to the lowest point on Earth, which was reached on January 23rd, 1960, um, with Don Walsh and Jacques Picard as they descended 35,800 feet into the Mariana Trench, which is located just off the island of Guam in the Pacific. Oceanography, as we know it, is one of the newer sciences, but its, root, its roots extend back several tens of thousands of years. Uh, it is documented in 850 BC that early naturalists began attempting to understand these enormous bodies of water that they saw from land. Uh, the real sort of pivotal moment for oceanography came with the Challenger expedition from 1872 to 1876, where they circumnavigated um, the globe, documenting huge amounts of natural life, of ocean currents, of salinity, of those types of things, really putting that scientific perspe perspective into oceanography as we know it today. And of course, as technology developed, so too did the study of our oceans. In 1934, William Beebe was lowered in a tethered bath, bath escape to a depth of 3,028 feet. This marked the advent of manned exploration to the depths of the ocean. With World War II came, of course, that technology surge. Um, it, it brought about deep ocean cameras, sonar, early magnetometers, again, all advancing this field. Uh, very notably, in February of 1954, the first untethered bathyscape reached a depth of 13,000 feet just off the coast of Africa, and it was designed by Auguste Picard, whose son, Jacques, would later descend the Mariana Trench. In January of 1960, the bathyscape, which you can see floating there, um, was towed for four days by a U.S. naval tugboat, uh, and, it was called the, uh, and it was a navigable Trieste. It was a 150-foot steel bath escape, and it sat atop a rough sea and prepared to plunge. Picard and Walsh climbed in, and they actually descended fairly quickly at a rate of four feet per second, but so great was the depth that, it took, that the voyage took five hours to complete. And what was the point of going down there, aside from proving that humans could 
go all the way down there to find life. And it is, uh, and Jacques, Jacques Picard claimed to have seen what was later identified as a sea cucumber. Now, unlike our other famous firsts, <laughs> unlike our other famous firsts, this has not been attempted time after time after time after time. The only other successful expedition to the Marianas Trench was in 2012 when James, when James Cameron took the, the Deep Sea Challenger down once again to the bottom of Mariana Trench. And actually, he was aided by Don Walsh. And the last thing Don Walsh said to him as he closed the hatch was, find that fish uh, to prove that life had been down there. Now, of course, one st small step for man, one giant leap for mankind. The surface of the moon was reached on July 20th of 1969 with the team of the Apollo 11, Buzz Aldrin, Neil Armstrong, and Michael Collins. Of course, the steps to sending humans to the moon ultimately began with man's ability to fly. I don't know if you've noticed, but we are very land-based creatures. <laughs> so we had to get these land-based creatures somehow into the sky. 1783, the first hot air balloon was flown. And less than two months later, the Montgolfier brothers attempted the first manned balloon ride, realizing the goal of putting humans in flight. Motorized flight would come in the century to follow. And on December 17th of 1903, the Wright brothers flew their plane for a total of 120 feet for 12 seconds. Um, but human flight was now more feasible than ever. Building upon feats of aviation and the early rocket science inspired by World War II, space became the next frontier. We, of course, can't talk about getting into space without mentioning 1957, Sputnik bec becoming the first man-made object to orbit the Earth. And this launch of the satellite was nothing less than the space shot heard around the world. The space race between the Soviet Union and the United States was on. And of course, the world stood breathless as Neil Armstrong announced those infamously iconic words on July 20th of 1969 as he and Buzz Aldrin set foot on the moon. The lunar module, the Eagle, had separated from the command and service module, Columbia, which was piloted by Michael Collins. Collins orbited above and around the dark side of the moon. And as he did this, the Eagle, which was carrying Armstrong and Aldrin, touched down on the dusty bed of the Sea of Tranquility. After exiting the module, Aldrin and Armstrong explored the lunar surface for two hours and 31 minutes. They collected soil samples, deployed a seismometer to measure tremors, and a reflective laser beam that would ultimately give us the distance of the Earth to the moon, which is a total of 239,000 miles. The return trip to Earth took three days, traveling at 25,000 miles per hour, with the hull temperature reaching 4,000 degrees Fahrenheit. Uh, and then it ended with a parachute splashdown. From the Sea of Tranquility to the Pacific Ocean, from one world to another, the crew of the Apollo 11 had returned home. And Buzz Aldrin, of course, is quoted as saying, the future of space exploration is limited only by our ability to imagine. Now you'll notice, none of our famous firsts include women. And this is not at all to say women were not involved in any of those explorations or exploration in general. According to the Explorers Club bylaws adopted October 25th, 1905, persons eligible for active membership shall be men who have engaged in exploration or who have added to geographical knowledge of the world. And it goes on. Persons eligible for active membership shall be men was staunchly enforced. And it wasn't until 1981, following an impassioned letter from noted astrophysicist Carl Sagan, that this component 
uh, of the bylaws was amended and women were finally permitted access to applications. In that year, the first class of women, um, which was 20 in total, was elected to membership, and that includes the likes of Sylvia Earle, noted aquanaut, who's all the way at the end there, Kathy Sullivan, who was the first American woman to walk in space, she also serves as our honorary chairperson right now, and archaeologist Anna Roosevelt. But what involvement did women have at the club in, or in exploration before 1981? Although they might not have been among our membership, they were, of course, incredible explorers in their own right. I do have to mention our intrepid polar wives. Um, Josephine Perry, the wife of Robert Perry, gave birth to their first daughter, Marie, uh, 13 degrees south of the North Pole in 1893. Um, they were on these expeditions with them. They were doing this scientific work with them. On December 22nd of 1912, Ethel Brilliana Tweedy became the club's first female guest um, guest of honor and lecturer, and she's pictured right there to the left. She traveled extensively in the Arctic beginning in 1886. Amelia Earhart, of course, who's drawn right there, uh, was the first woman and second person to fly across the Atlantic in 1932. And in June of that year, after her flight, the Explorers Club Board of Directors issued her an official commendation of respect um, and admiration for her work. And that there is an image of the invitation to the uh, evening that she was hosted and, and was hosted on her behalf. In the center there, you've got Osa Johnson and her husband, Martin, and she teamed up as um, documentary filmmakers. And Osa's really incredible. Her husband, Martin, is quoted as saying, well, I knew I could shoot whatever was behind the camera because Osa would shoot whatever was coming at me from any other direction. Um, and then, of course, we've got Sally Ride. Um, uh, who was the first American woman in space. So, what's left to explore? We get that question all the time at the Explorers Club. Um, upon receiving the club's legendary Explorers Medal in 2013, John Glenn put it perfectly. Back in the days of old maps that showed the known world, off on the edges, it showed boiling pots of oil and dragons and so on. Our whole history has been one of dragon pushing, pushing dragons back off the edge and filling in those gaps on the maps. And that is a key role that the Explorers Club has provided, and that attitude of curiosity is one that has been long sponsored by the club." End quote. Because really, what is exploration but curiosity in action? Today, our 3,500 active members represent over 60 countries, and they go on upwards of 600 expeditions a year because exploration really is this ongoing process. You answer one question or come to the conclusion of one hypothesis and you open up dozens of others that you didn't know were possible until you've come to that first conclusion. The mission of the club is to inspire the next generation and foster the vision, courage, and tenacity of future explorers. And we all have a little bit of explorer in us and um, as one of our dear friends and noted polar explorers, Stefan Kinberg says often, what have you explored today? And if the answer is nothing, go out and find something. Thank you very much.